Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, today we have William C. to thank for his donation to uh, help pay some of the expenses here in the salon. So, uh, hey, thank you very much, William. I really appreciate your support. Now, uh, where where are we? Well, after last week's podcast, uh, with what was, for me, a new Terrence McKenna talk, I, uh, I just couldn't resist the temptation to begin listening to one of the tapes in the box of McKenna material that my friend Diana Slattery sent to me uh, a couple of months back. Now, uh, Diana and I had uh, reconnected at the Psychedelic Science Conference after uh, having not seen one another for a while. And, uh, in fact, I can't even remember if uh, we were last together at Burning Man or at a salon or another conference. Uh, <laughs> seems like we've known each other for a long time. But, uh, anyway, uh, after uh, talking with Diana, she said she had all these tapes at, uh, of Terrence McKenna she'd be happy to give to me. And so she, I got this big box filled with tapes from her. And uh, some of them are uh, talks that we've already heard and... Uh, there were a, a few professional recordings that uh, were copyrighted that I didn't want to uh, use here, but uh, there were also a lot of old cassette tapes that uh, she'd obviously recorded herself over the years. And uh, it's uh, one of those tapes that I'm going to begin the Diana Slattery phase of the McKenna material, for uh, lack of a better description. So, uh, hey, thanks again, Diana. Uh, your years of recording and uh, hauling these tapes around the country are... Uh, finally going to uh, pay off by you knowing that uh, quite literally thousands of others of us are uh, now the beneficiaries of your labors. Now, uh, the first set of tapes that I digitized and uh, will be uh, playing this week is a uh, three-tape set that's simply labeled Shamanology, Mill Valley 1984. Now, considering that this was recorded on a personal cassette player back in 84, I think the sound quality cleaned up pretty well, uh, well enough to use here in the salon, and uh, hopefully you'll agree. Now, one of my uh, favorite things about the, this particular recording, by the way, uh, comes right at the beginning when Terrence uh, actually had to introduce himself and said that he was a philosophical gadfly and a shamanologist. But uh, as you'll hear in just a moment, uh, back in the early days of his workshops, and, uh, and this is one of those times before, uh, or is right about the time he was becoming the persona that we now think of as Terrence McKenna, but uh, back uh, in the 80s, when uh, there was really no World Wide Web, uh, very little information on the net about psychedelics, uh, well, he was probably the world's main source of information about uh, psychedelic substances in general, and uh, ayahuasca in particular. And uh, so you'll hear now how uh, there were a lot of questions about the nuts and bolts of the psychedelic experience uh, uh, back then. But these are things, of course, you can find answers to now at arrowid.org. Anyway, uh, now let's join an intimate little group of early Terrence McKenna fans and hear the great bard for ourselves at a time when uh, he was just beginning to become a well-known personality on the psychedelic scene. And uh, keep in mind as we listen to this talk that there weren't all that many people who were as experienced and knowledgeable about psychedelics back then as uh, you are today. 
You know, uh, back in 1984, uh, <laughs> all of a sudden I'm thinking of the George Orwell book, too. <laughs> it's funny to say back in 1984, but in a way, doesn't it feel like we are back in 1984? Anyhow, back then, uh, Terrence's workshops were probably the main source of information. Now compare that state of affairs to the spread of this information today, and I think you may agree that it was a combination of Terrence McKenna and the Internet, maybe, that we have to thank for the resurgence of knowledge about the role of sacred medicines in the formation of human civilization. At least uh, that's my take on it, but uh, enough of me. Now uh, here's Terrence McKenna. My name is Thomas McKenna, and I'm uh, a philosophical gadfly and shamanologist, writer and lecturer. Um, Ruth assured me that you were so familiar with my work that probably we could handle this meeting as a dialogue after a short introduction to some of the things that I'm interested in. So we'll attempt that. I'll talk for a few minutes and then we'll see if we just can't sustain a conversation about the aspects of these things that interest you. If any of you have read The Invisible Landscape, which I am the co-author of with my brother, you know that it ranges over fairly hardcore chemistry and neurophysiology through the phenomenology of shamanism and on into a fairly extensive discussion of principles of ordering in the I Ching. But what I seem to uh, find myself publicly lecturing about is the relationship of uh, hallucinogens, especially plant hallucinogens, to shamanic healing in the context where use of hallucinogens is associated with shamanism. If you look at the worldwide distribution of hallucinogens, you immediately notice that there are several unexplained anomalies. Why is it that uh, fully 80% of the world's known plant hallucinogens are concentrated in the Amazon basin, even though the flora of the old world jungle of Indonesia uh, is equally rich. And Weston Labar and a number of people have written about this, trying to say that perhaps it is because the people of the Amazon are closer to the hunting and gathering pre-agricultural mode than anywhere else in the world. But for whatever reason, the peoples of the Amazon have developed uh, the use of hallucinogens and curing and shamanism to a very high degree. And <clears throat> while a number of plant species are involved in the production of these various uh, drugs, the chemistry of them is more simple than the botany. In other words, almost all of the hallucinogens in use in the Amazon uh, rely on a monoamine oxidase inhibition to potentiate dimethyltryptamine. Now, in other words, monoamine oxidase uh, is the enzyme system in the body which degrades monoamines, which would be serotonin, but also any uh, introduced monoamines, which would be all alkaloids. And uh, 
many drugs. When the monoamine oxidase is inhibited chemically, it can no longer do its job of uh, deactivating uh, these compounds, and consequently you get an accumulation of them at the synapse. And this is uh, thought to be the mechanic by which the hallucinogenic uh, experience is induced with these drugs. Since so many people here seem interested in curing, I think this morning I will, uh, in these brief remarks, concentrate on one uh, ethnomedical system, and then if your questions range out beyond that, uh, that's fine. But I want to concentrate on this one ethnomedical system because part of what I am trying to do is to get researchers like yourselves to look more closely at this. There are a number of unanswered questions. In fact, I would say more is not known than known. The system that I refer to is the endemic use of ayahuasca throughout Bolivia, Peru, southern Colombia, portions of uh, Ecuador and Brazil. Very briefly, ayahuasca is uh, a combinatory drug made out of the boiled leaves and stems of a malpagaceous woody climber called Banisteriopsis copy, a huge woody vine that sometimes reaches 200 meters in length in the jungle. And uh, it is boiled to make a hot water infusion. And then to this is added a small amount of the DMT-containing leaves of some other plant, either Banister, um, either uh, Diploteris cabarena or Socotria viridis. Now, my brother has just finished his work toward the PhD at the University of British Columbia, and much of what his thesis consisted of was uh, looking at drug and plant samples that we collected in the Amazon in 1982 when we went down there. For over 10 years, Schultes and Bo Holmstedt of the Karolinska Institute had published theories of the activity of ayahuasca, which stated that they believed it worked through monoamine oxidase inhibition, but this had never really been uh, tested. Now it has been looked at in the laboratory and essentially confirmed that this is precisely what's happening. And it's a very interesting comment on ethnomedicine because unlike peyote or Amanita muscaria or the psilocybin mushrooms of Mexico, ayahuasca is a combinatory drug. It is prepared. It is not simply picked and eaten. So as a consequence of this, it can be made either well or badly. And as a consequence of that, the personality of the shaman becomes far more important in the ayahuasca cults than uh, in the cults that revolve around the use of uh, plant drugs where no preparation is involved. Now, at the beginning of this, I mentioned that all the all the uh, hallucinogenic drugs of the Amazon are based on this tryptamine-beta-carboline uh, uh, interaction. 
what we were doing in 1982 was looking at a much more endemic and restricted drug complex, which is, uh, for over 30 years, there have been persistent reports in the ethnographic literature that there was an orally active DMT drug, which was very interesting to pharmacologists because there's large amounts of uh, monoamine oxidase in uh, the human gut assumed by evolutionary biologists to be there to degrade uh, potentially dangerous or toxic monoamines that might be taken in through the diet. So it's very interesting to pharmacologists to hear that there is an orally active DMT drug because it uh, flies in the face of pharmacological theory. It should be impossible. Uh, and the pharmacologists said that if there was an orally active DMT drug, then it must be complexed with an MAO inhibitor to make it work. So what we were doing was going down there and visiting various shaman in various places, persuading them to make the paste for us, making voucher specimens of the plants that went into it, and then taking uh, the voucher specimens the pickled material, the air-dried material, all of this stuff back to Canada. And uh, our assumption was that we would pretty much confirm Homestead and Schulte's uh, assertion that this drug also worked by monoamine oxidase inhibition. It now appears not to be so. Uh, it also appears to be... Uh, there are questions about the composition of the drug. The people who used this drug were disrupted in the 1930s. There was a uh, dispute between Colombia and Peru, and when the new boundary was drawn, these people felt they were in the wrong country. They felt Peruvian, but they ended up on the Colombian side of the line. The Putumayo River was set as the new border, and they undertook then a kind of exodus in which uh, 10 to 15,000 of them uh, moved about 100 miles across the Putumayo River to the present uh, center where they're located. And in that process, we believe that the knowledge of the drug was severely compromised. The reason for this is because samples of the drug that we collected north of the Putumayo River in 1971 actually did show the presence of beta-carbolines in them. But samples prepared below the Putumayo River had no trace of beta-carbolines in them, and in fact, in bioassay, seemed, uh, that means when we took it, uh, seemed uh, either inactive or toxic. And it's well known that the trees from which this uh, drug is prepared is also the source of an arrow poison. And in fact, among the Yanomamo, uh, if they are, if the men are on a hunting expedition and they run out of the supply of the drug, they are persistently reported to scrape the arrow poison off their quill arrows and to sniff that. <laughs> so what exactly is going on is not uh, clear. 
I think we we took turns doing the bioassays uh, with the drugs in Peru, and I think my brother got uh, the most powerful and frightening sample, and it sounded from his account like a paralytic poison. He felt numbing, which began around the lips and proceeded down his throat. His breathing became very shallowed and labored. His mind was racing, but he couldn't move. There were no, there was no eidetic or hypnagogic imagery. There was simply a uh, a massive sense of respiratory uh, depression. And when he recovered from this and questioned the shaman who had made the drug, his only comment was that it does take getting used to. <laughs> but I'm not sure that we'll repeat the experiment. So I, I mention that because. Uh, here is an unsolved problem. We took the best suggestion of the generation of researchers ahead of us and went to the Amazon and ran their suggestion to ground and it appears not to their conjecture was incorrect. These varola paste drugs don't work through MAO inhibition. So here is the continuing unsolved pharmacological problem, which if any of you find yourselves doing field work in the Amazon, this is the one to bear in mind. The ayahuasca complex that I mentioned earlier is much more accessible and in fact is perhaps the most widely distributed psychedelic drug-taking uh, uh, complex in the world. It involves millions and millions of people who on a regular basis, approximately weekly, gather together, usually in windowless, corrugated roof sheds, and the local ayahuascaro, and in these areas, ayahuascaro and shaman mean the same thing, uh, he leads the group in the taking of this drug. And uh, a number of people are come to these sessions because they have medical or psychological problems. Either is, there is no distinction made. Many people come to these sessions out of curiosity. A certain percentage come with the attitude that they're going to take a psychedelic drug. In other words, that this is a visionary experience. And uh, this phenomenon of taking the drug is completely embedded in the people's lives and uh, very, very efficaciously so. They call it La Purga and in fact harmine, the main monoamine oxidase inhibiting constituent of, uh, of ayahuasca, actually is a, uh, a strong anti-worm remedy and this is important and definitely gives the people taking ayahuasca a, an adaptive leg up on everybody else because intestinal worms are an endemic problem in these areas and I believe there's no question that if you're taking ayahuasca every couple of weeks you're probably staying fairly free of this. Uh, the curing uh, scenario of the ayahuascaro is easily identified to the curing scenario of shamans worldwide. In other words, it consists of magical songs the blowing of tobacco smoke over the body of the patient, the laying on of hands, the sucking on the afflicted part of the body to remove a, uh, 
a uh, magical object which may or may not be visible, uh, the interpreting of visions, and this sort of thing. The ayahuasca really functions as the hierophant for these groups of country people. And I might say a word about the context in which all this is happening. Though ayahuasca is used by deep forest Indians, and they have their own folk ways about it, uh, it's really a mass phenomenon of displaced Indian and um, mixed mestizo population. What you have in the Amazon are uh, n relatively new cities, new if we mean by new, built within this century. Iquitos in Peru arose first as a consequence of the rubber boom. Any of you who saw Herzog's film, Burden of Dreams, or not uh, Fitzcarraldo, uh, got a good idea of what, Iowa, uh, of what Iquitos is like. Pucalpa is a much newer city in the south of Peru, and there's essentially 50,000 Indians have come out of the jungle to work in the sawmills and to to create a tremendous uh, pocket of syncretic foment where folk beliefs, shamanistic practices, uh, languages are all in a state of homogenation and very rich, very rich for those people to live in, very rich to do research in. And uh, it was there that we found the uh, ayahuascaro who seemed to us to have the most uh, as they say in Hebrew, he was mimash, he was real, he was uh, had a sense of existential authenticity about him. And then in the laboratory, we backed that up. His stuff was uh, consistently stronger and better made than anyone else's. So Kat and I spent uh, six or seven weeks with these people. We just moved in with them. And we took ayahuasca as often as we could arrange to do, which was at least once a week and sometimes twice a week. And I, we can attest to its curative powers because the peaks of ayahuasca taking were uh, interspersed with the trenches of salmonella infection. <laughs> each time we got salmonella, we would ask the shaman to move up the next ayahuasca taking day. And that would give us about three days grace before the next bout of salmonella. It was a terrific problem. If you know what it is, you know what I mean. If you don't, you're lucky. So... Uh, we can, I can answer questions about this on many different levels. I guess before I open it for discussion, since so many of you seem to be interested in curing, I should describe, and maybe Kat can help with this, our impression of what is going on in the curing. Naturally, uh, well, you have to talk about psychedelic drugs. I think the word psychedelic is maybe too broad because it includes things which are very different from each other. It can include things as different as ketamine and mescaline. And uh, certainly uh, the tryptamine uh, intoxication, if we can use that word advisedly, is very distinct from the intoxication or, or uh, the immersion in the phenomenology of LSD or mescaline something like that. In our cultural context, DMT is 
almost never encountered, and when it is encountered, it is usually smoked, and it's very, very brief. It onsets in about 45 seconds. It lasts 100 to 300 seconds, and then it fades in a few minutes. And it's this tremendously intense visual hallucinogen, very difficult, in fact, to imagine anything more intense than that. Now, psilocybin, which is the active hallucinogen in mushrooms, is 4-phosphoroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine. It's well understood that the phosphoryl group is removed as it crosses the blood-brain barrier. This turns it into psilocin, 5-hydroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine. Uh, I mean, 4-hydroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine. And this is, a, this is very close to serotonin. So close that it's reasonable to assume that these compounds are competing for the same sites of activity at the synapse. Now, though uh, psilocybin cannot be directly changed into DMT, it's a two-step process, the structural affinities of them are very clear. What seems to be happening in ayahuasca is a very small amount of DMT and uh, a lot of MAO inhibitors being used to activate it. Uh, and I should talk about these MAO inhibitors in ayahuasca. They are harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharman, the family of compounds known as beta-carbolines. Now, beta-carbolines are psychoactive in their own right, but not hallucinogenic. Some of you may know the work of Claudio Naranjo, who used harmine and harmaline in therapy. But if you study his work on the subject very carefully, it becomes clear that fully half of all the human descriptions of uh, the psychoactivity of beta-carmelines come from one subject. And massive doses had to be given. They were giving uh, 10 milligrams per kilogram in some cases to elicit even low edetic activity behind closed eyelids. So to call it a hallucinogen is perhaps a misnomer. Uh, one of the things that my brother discovered that seems fascinating to me is that in in vitro systems, meaning in test tubes, uh, ayahuasca brews that we brought from the Amazon were found to be a million times stronger for MAO inhibition than they needed to be. When he diluted these things to one millionth the strength that the people were taking them in the Amazon, he was still getting 80% MAO inhibition. So what seems to be happening, if we can extrapolate from in vitro to in vivo, is that they are way overdoing the amount of MAO inhibitor you need and just barely sidling up to enough uh, tryptamine to potentiate the, uh, the hallucinogenic activity. When you take ayahuasca, first, after about 30 minutes, you feel a kind of comedy effect, which, if you've taken a large amount of it, can actually become almost the beginnings of a light anesthesia. And then, in darkness, under the influence of these ikaros, these magical songs, the hypnagogia begins to weave itself. And it is not uh, sharp-edged, bright, geometric, 
kinds of hallucinations. It's much more, as he says in his thesis, the colors of the forest floor, rich ochres, olive drabs, warm browns, dusky oranges, all very impressionistically put together and very much subject to audio control. The ikaros, the magical songs, are actually uh, technical tools for controlling the fabric of the hallucination. And this is very interesting to me because, as some of you may know who have heard me lecture before, I'm interested in the effect of these things on the language centers and the relationship of visual modalities to spoken modalities. And definitely, this is what's happening in ayahuasca. The songs are being used to control the visions. Perhaps this is what's happening in uh, in peyote circles as well. I don't have great familiarity with that, but I do know that there's great stress on attaining these magical songs, which are not produced from the ego. They are spontaneous outbursts of uh, linguistic order that affect the visual cortex and control the fabric of the hallucinations. And the shaman can use this to, in his own language, to look into the body. He can see into the body, and I would say of ayahuasca, it's the most, I don't want to say health-oriented, but it's definitely somatically oriented. You, you feel how you feel on it, and you see into yourself, and you can actually direct energy in a visual way that is way more intense than mere metaphor. And if a person such as myself can do this, you can imagine someone who's given their life to manipulating these states, how intense it must be. <coughs> and they see into the body, and they direct sound into the body, and by this means energy blockages can be broken up, diseases diagnosed, <coughs> psychological conditions addressed, all kinds of things. Uh, go on and uh, our attitude in looking at this was not the uh, attitude of representatives of a superior culture studying the quaint folk ways of preliterate peoples it seems very clear that this health care delivery system is very effective perhaps more effective than our own especially in the treating of psychological disorders of which there are a number in Peru that only these populations are uh, subject to. I am not an anthropologist or a sociologist and not particularly interested in phenomenological descriptions of these things. I really believe that there is a, uh, a uh, potential impact on our own society from all of this. If we could understand what was happening, we would have a much uh, better chance of being able to orient our own healthcare delivery system to be more effective. Uh, a friend of ours, an anthropologist who lives in Finland, who Louis Luna, who showed his film in, in Vancouver last year, he is completely convinced that the real mastery of ayahuasca lay in following a very rigorous diet which uh, the deep forest ayahuasqueros use. And this may be true. I mean, definitely 
uh, beta-carbonines are endogenously produced in human metabolism, so are beta-carbonines, uh, I mean, so are tryptamines, and the peculiar diet in the Amazon anyway, which is high starch, uh, uh, low protein, high sugar, very few green vegetables kind of diet, may predispose the these people to accessing ayahuasca more easily. Cat had no trouble getting off uh, when we were being dosed down there. I had more trouble, and I think it was simply a matter of uh, the ratio of the compound to body weight. I was definitely the largest person in any of these sessions, and uh, the same amount is doled out to each person, and you're not in a context where you can say, I'd like to take more, please. <laughs> you just have to go with what's going on. But we also, our informant prepared several bottles of ayahuasca for us, and in a series of experiments in the United States, when we got back, we verified that it is not only a hallucinogen, but it can be a terrifyingly intense hallucinogen uh, if, uh, if uh, errors in dosage are made. It can be, uh, well, I said after I made my error of dosage, I never hope to be more stoned than that. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, what I offer to you as interesting, perhaps, to you in your own field. I, you must be aware that I have other wrinkles, the extraterrestrial angle, the end of history angle, several different things. But... All of these things were inspired by our belief that these Amazon peoples have a technology for exploring the modalities of the unconscious that is centuries ahead of us. I mean, we are at the very beginning of exploring the unconscious. The Freudian and Jungian models, which you can think of the Freudian model as embedded like a uh, black dot in the center of the Jungian bullseye, each theory of the unconscious claims more and more territory as its own, but what I have become convinced of from using these hallucinogenic drugs is that the major portion of the unconscious has very little to do with human beings. It is simply a modality, an interior landscape, and large portions of it uh, uh, are not human. You could almost make the cybernetic metaphor of uh, ROM portions of the unconscious. ROM stands for read-only memory. This means that if you have a computer with read-only memory, you can read what is in that section of memory, but you cannot change it or input into it. And I believe there are read-only portions of memory that no human being has ever inputted into. So they bear no trace of the uh, humanness, but they can be contemplated. And this is the idea of the alien other, uh, a tension that appears in modern society. It has appeared before, for instance, in Hellenistic society. Uh, as techniques are developed for exploring consciousness, these transhuman, non-human dimensions slowly come into view. It appears to be uh, a co-equal dimension of existential validity, which our cultural and linguistic programming has blinded us to rather severely. 
now of course we're returning to look at it again in the larger context of the entire uh, intellectual thrust of the 20th century being an effort to recapture and understand archaic uh, forms of thought this is why our fascination with the unconscious with drugs with shamanism with the forms of art like cubism and this sort of thing because we are trying to give ourselves cultural balance by harking back to a time in tempore a sacral time a time before history and these drugs are the means to do that properly understood our problems on this end are simply the baggage of cultural and legal and uh, conventional assumptions about what these things are. I think there's a great deal to be learned from these shamanic uh, uh, societies and conventions. However, I'm not a, I call myself a shamanologist to set myself aside from the people who claim to be shaman. Shaman. <laughs> I don't, uh, I, I think that there's a great deal to be learned from shamanism, but that there is a great deal that can be extrapolated from us, that we need to create our own shamanism, and that we will. When you're sitting in these cult huts in utter darkness with people vomiting and singing and undergoing these things, and you are still trying to perform the eidetic reduction, still thinking about Husserl and Heidegger and Heidegger, <laughs> you realize you know, that you, you, your, me, your mental insides are too different to ever stand in their shoes. You have to make your own shoes. So let's talk about all this. <laughs> but then you said that um, mushrooms are metabolized into tryptamine type stuff, and so I wasn't clear as to... No, well, either I wasn't clear or you misunderstood me. What uh, Mescaline which is the active uh, constituent of peyote, is not a tryptamine. It's, an, it's a kind of amphetamine. Oh, no, mushrooms. mushrooms. Psilocybin is an interesting compound. It is all, the only four-substituted indolethylamine uh, that occurs in nature. So it's, uh, it's unique. And in another context, this is one of the reasons we were led to suggest that it might be an extraterrestrial gene inserted from the outside, because you just don't get single instances of a compound occurring in organic nature. Serotonin, for instance, which is very closely related to psilocybin, occurs in everything from planaria to man. It occurs virtually in all known living systems. Psilocybin only is known to occur in a very limited number of fungi. It is a phosphorylated tryptamine. Uh, the tryptamines then that occur in the varolas, in these trees used to make the paste, or in the admixture plants of ayahuasca, these are not phosphorylated tryptamines. These are things like uh, an dimethyl tryptamine itself and 5-methoxy amino. Uh, yeah, the the off. No, it was never there in those cases. No, no, I mean in, in uh, the case of in mushrooms, it's, yes. it's stripped off, it's metabolized. So, is the end result of subjective experiences similar between psilocybin and ayahuasca? Yes, they are very, very similar, with one exception, I think, maybe more. 
the major difference is that unlike psilocybin, psilocybin has one very curious property, which is that it seems animate. You contact an organized intellecty of some sort very easily. It speaks to you. I've compared it to the logos of Hellenistic syncretism. It seems to be a, uh, a, uh, a psychic component not under the control of the ego. And this is very curious, frightening to some people. Uh, when I was with Albert Hoffman at that Entheogen conference in Santa Barbara, I asked him, you know, he discovered LSD and he characterized psilocybin and I asked him which he preferred to take and he said he preferred LSD and I said why and he said there's something too animate about psilocybin and closer questioning showed that this was unsettling to him it's too much like a, the orthodox notion of madness <laughs> having a dialogue with an independent voice in your head is quite unsettling to a certain sort of person, I think. And you don't have the same experience with ayahuasca. It teaches. Do you want to say yes, something? Yes, I think that uh, ayahuasca has the feeling of some kind of entity in it as well, but it uh, it doesn't particularize like the little teachers who can come at you and bombard you or whatever. And and uh, psilocybin is sort of more and more just very large and very gentle. Mm. And so, if my uh, had experiences where I think Dennis did as well, where I was led through the forest by someone so much bigger than me that I couldn't see him or her, you know, but taught about the plants along the way in the jungle, what they were. Or once I saw a huge hand dangling above my head that was all black of jewels in the crevices, you know, and that, it's that kind of entity, you know. Not frightening, though. I didn't ever find that frightening. The Russians, the coming of it at the beginning when people vomit, when they have a very strong seasickness, that's what they call it, La Maria. Very strong seasickness at the beginning. That's that's scary. <laughs> and you quake. I mean, and they seem to encourage that. For instance, uh, this shed where we would do it had a corrugated roof and no windows, but it was up on short stilts. The shaman would stand up and put his hands in front of him and tremble, and he would transmit this trembling into the floor and shake the entire building and several times the protocol is when you feel that you're going to vomit you just go outside and vomit and people are coming and going all the time we didn't vomit that much which was very puzzling to them they really stress vomiting and they identify the vomiting with the purgative uh, effects of it and when we would not vomit they'd say oh you must live very cleanly you must be in very good shape but actually all that was happening, I think, was that we were following the rules they laid down, and they were not. <laughs> like they would say, you know, never eat pork before doing it, don't eat anything for six hours before doing it, no salt, no alcohol, and we would do this and be fine, and they would just be... <laughs> Even the out oh, ten different ways <laughs> and getting sick. <laughs> but the, the entity in ayahuasca, it, it teaches by showing. The visions teach. The thing in psilocybin is much more puzzling. I mean, it's a haranguer. You actually have, you know, psychic arm wrestling with somebody who wants to, to who loves 
controversy and rhetoric and is well able to express itself and present itself, that's a very puzzling thing that uh, could lead one far afield if you sought a reasonable explanation. Um, so those are the major differences, I, I think. I think ayahuasca lends itself to be a better healing drug mm-hmm. than psilocybin. Because it is gentler, because you can still communicate uh, with the other people, it's very close. It has this, kind of, this number of people in this small space, you know. And you can, it can flow back and forth, whereas psilocybin, if you've experienced it, you know, it just sort of blasts off, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe you can do personal healing on psilocybin, but... It's very earth-centered. I mean, even taking ayahuasca up where we live in Sonoma County, immediately as it comes on, it's about sunlight on brown water, huge twining... In other words, it creates the jungle. It is the jungle in some strange way. The psilocybin entity is Gnostic, it points to the center of the galaxy. It talks about ending history. It's full of a sense of crisis and the need for activity and uh, humor, but this intense desire for change. It is not a drug of acceptance, you know. It wants transformation of a very radical sort. The ayahuasca seems to uh, create, to integrate, especially into that environment. You know, the major uh, alkaloid fraction of ayahuasca is harmine, which was a beta-carboline, which was first uh, isolated from Syrian rue, the giant Syrian rue, pergamon harmala, and that's why it's called harmine, before enough was known about the compound to realize, the compound in ayahuasca, to realize that it was the same as the compound in pergamon harmala. It was called telepathine. Because the early explorers, uh, Via Vicencio and Kochgrenberg in the early years of this century, uh, reported that the people were inducing states of mass telepathy. And there is some reason to think that this might be true in some sense. In other words, these people live in a state of semi-telepathy anyway. If you can imagine a hunting-gathering tribe of 30 people moving through a vast rainforest with their children and their elders, uh, the notion of the super-expressed individual that we take for granted is not really there. There is more a sense of the unity of the group. Then, when the elders get together and take ayahuasca, there is a kind of melding together to obtain consensus and also uh, information impossible to obtain any other way. For instance, weather information. Shamanism is always related to weather prophecy and it's always been assumed that this was just uh, a wing and a prayer or that they had subtle, that they were super sensitized to environmental clues about weather change. But also things like game movement, this is very important to know. And, and uh, for all of these things, ayahuasca was invoked and used. I want to go back to something you said about the personality of mushrooms. I think it's an interesting political comment that mushrooms should be 
growing here in this country, which is so apathetic, it really needs to kick in the ass, I think, to do something, and that we don't have a more gentle type of, uh, of drug here that's in, in, in Dodger. And also we don't have a collective format to use it in mm -hmm. the people have to experiment individually and gradually can get decisions all the same Two things. Let's see. First is um, you described me with your brother's experience reminded me of Michael Harner's description of his uh, ayahuasca experience. And he said after I guess going through a, a kind of death like experience but that's why they called it the little death. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was that he said that in their preparation of ayahuasca, there was some tree up there. Did you find that? Uh, tree detours, arboreal detours in the subfamily Bergmansia are used in certain areas, uh, rarely, and not in these, not in these public gatherings of people. Propane alkaloids are notoriously difficult to control, and that would be more within a context of brujeria, of real sorcery and witchcraft, and generally tends to be more montane, a phenomenon of the mountains, especially uh, around the, the valley of the Sibundoy and those places. We never... Uh, it, we grew Bugmansias and have them, of course, but we never... Uh, combined it with ayahuasca because it, knowing just what the tropanes are like on their own, it seemed very uh, dangerous. You know, some tropanes make you sweat and your heart race. Other tropanes make you fall asleep and your body temperature drops and your respiration falls. And it just seemed like a, a dangerous area. There are a number. One of the interesting chemical frontiers of all this is these admixtures. In other words, you have the basic ayahuasca, the boiled stems of Banisteriopsis capi. Normally what's added to that are the leaves of Cicotria uh, viridis, a rubiaceous bush related to coffee, which has a great deal of DMT in the leaves. Uh, in the northern part of the range where this drug is being made, where it is called not ayahuasca but yahe, uh, Brunfelsias, which are also solanaceous plants with very high molecular weight tropanes that have defied characterization. They are sometimes used. But we knew Tim Plowman, and he's the only uh, non-Indian person ever to take Brunfelsia, and his description of it, it sounded like, you know, his life hung in the balance for 36 hours, and he didn't know whether he would make it or not. So we didn't go too deeply into that. What we did do was we always asked our informants what other plants are sometimes used in uh, ayahuasca. And they would usually name them. And we would collect vouchers of nine unusual admixture plants that we collected. Only one, a, uh, a, a menisperm, which is this very small family of plants. A menisperm, Arbuta grandifolia, was definitely alkaloid positive, and that's there's more work to be done there. But uh, this technology of admixtures is very interesting and not well understood. And uh, 
that kind of thing could be worked out up here in the laboratory if you could get and grow all these things. Also, there are vast areas where the question about mixtures hasn't really been asked yet, right? That's you right. Places where people could go. That's right. Well, and Andy Weil was saying that he felt that the significance of the admixtures had to do with the synergistic effect of the uh, multiple alkaloids and that uh, it made an incredible amount of difference to the uh, person who was uh, going to these things. Yes, well, that's a, a weaker way of saying what I said. I mean, I, ayahuasca is not effective without an admixture. It's an odd experience, but it's not an effective uh, trance-inducing compound or visionary uh, compound without an admixture. You have to have it. Could you contrast what you've been saying with uh, the muscat? Amanita muscarium? Well, that's an entirely different situation. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I'll review it briefly. Amanita muscaria is a uh, mushroom that has a mycorrhizal relationship to birch trees that is w distributed throughout the world at altitudes above 5,000. Well, no, actually it occurs at sea level, too. But anyway, it uh, is highly variable, both geographically and seasonally. And in Siberia, in the Amur River Basin, the Yakut shamans and a couple of other tribes have utilized this for a long, long time. Uh, Gordon Wasson wrote a book in which he tried to suggest that Amanita muscaria may have been the basis of the Vedic hallucinogen Soma. The problem with Amanita muscaria, which he freely admitted, is it is very hard to get satisfyingly loaded on it. Uh, you can, it is not consistent, and we don't know. There have been various suggestions made that you must roast it over a fire to create a, a change in its chemistry, that it must be pounded with milk curd, uh, apparently readings of the Vedas seem to suggest that whatever Soma was, it was pounded with milk curd. People have even come forth with chemical theories to show that the active agent in uh, Amanita muscaria, which is muscamole, is very closely related to the active toxin in Amanita muscaria, muscarine. You can decarboxylate muscarine to muscamole using the enzymes in sour milk. So it might be possible to incubate uh, Amanita muscaria in sour milk and turn the toxin into more of the active agent. Um, Is that also toxic? Well, any, I mean, sure, you have with any alkaloid or uh, what's called an LD50, which is the horrifying concept that <laughs> I don't need to go into. <laughs> one thing on other mushrooms, often in the uh, specific reaction of the person relates to their own biochemistry and especially what they've eaten within the last 48 hours before you ingest it, you can get uh, semi-toxic effects from certain mushrooms. For example, if you drink wine, um, even very common ones like morels, um, that uh, it varies from person to person. So that could be an additional factor, too. That's right. There's a Lepiota species, which if you eat it, it's perfectly harmless. But if you have very much alcohol in your system, it's fatal and irreversible. Uh, 
another thing to bear in mind is that uh, there are a number of monoamine oxidase inhibitors that occur in foods. Certain foods are high in these things. And, uh, for instance, uh, soft cheeses, bries, and camemberts are just loaded with tyramine, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. This is why uh, certain uh, antipsychotic drugs this is an admonition that they must not be given and and uh, and I think it would be murder to take ayahuasca on top of a, a typical diet of camembert and brie <laughs> fortunately these things are unknown in the Amazon <laughs> Yes, in Berkeley, uh, it would be tricky to keep track of yourself. (laughs) But I definitely felt uh, when we were in the Amazon, uh, the diet is so strange, and you cannot avoid it. because you can, everything you carry in goes on your back or on the back of an Indian who you are paying, and it may not seem like much, but over days and days. So there's always an effort to to eat off the land. And my God, <laughs> you know, if you've never been in a tropical jungle, people have the notion about a tropical jungle that it's just full of food, wonderful things to eat, all these plants and things. But you see, the Amazon has been above water 220 million years. That's 220 million years of uninterrupted evolution of a tropical ecosystem with ample uh, water supply. So that means every ecological niche is occupied. Protein is at such a premium that there is no protein. You could starve to death in the Amazon. There is no protein. Um, Chambers, who's the world's expert on the tropical rainforests, estimates that in the Amazon, 96% of all utilizable organic material at any one at any given moment is in a living system. In other words, only 4% of the organic material is not at any one given time in an organic system. What that means in practical terms is that a leaf falls. Ten minutes later, it's gone. <laughs> the, the leaf cutting ants, the this, the that, the, it just sucks it right up, you know. And uh, minerals in free suspension in rainwater, they estimate the average flow distance of an ion in rainwater is something like a centimeter (laughs) before it's uptaken into a living system. So there is no food in the Amazon, and this is one of the reasons why uh, coca is so popular. Coca in the Amazon is not a drug. It's one, a food, and two, an appetite depressant. And this is what they're, they are, uh, you know, and people, no matter how deeply you go into the Amazon, people are outraged at the notion that coca could be thought a drug. A drug is something bad. Coca is wonderful, you know. So, uh, it's a very tight ecosystem with very little elaboration of protein, and that's, uh, that's why the search for food plants has been so intense, and perhaps why the discover so many drug plants have been discovered because every single thing has been tested again and again for its effect as a food, a poison, a hallucinogen because everything is to be utilized. Mm-hmm. When you mention the use of the magic songs and the directing of, of the group experience in Alaska, um, 
you mentioned that you're interested in the relationship between the visual experience and, and language centers. Do you think that it's the linguistics per se, or do you think it's sound, I mean, as in frequency, versus linguistics in terms of semantics, <coughs> um, that, that has the, the guiding power? I mean, do you have a feeling for that distinction? Well, is it possible to, for a human being to make sounds which do not reflect syntactical deep structure of language? I mean, in other words, we're so hardwired for language that in any extended ver uh, vocalizing, a Chomskyite would be able to come and find the linguistic structure of it. I'm not sure. I think uh, this is a really interesting question because you have input through the senses. You have one 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 sense perceptor which is geared to transduce uh, audio input and one which is set to transduce visual input but it's probably something about the way these perceptual systems have evolved that they divide the incoming input actually all that's happening is that you're moving through a multi-leveled wave system of various kinds of inputs which you are transducing into tactility vision and sound uh, I think this is a very interesting area for research just recently someone sent me an article which I thought was very very suggestive it occurred in no less respectable a place than Martin Gardner's uh, or the amateur scientist uh, column in Scientific American but they were pointing out in there that if you can sustain a hundred hertz hum with your voice you can actually make an electric fan appear to slow down and stop you can also cause roll lines to appear on a TV set now what exactly is happening here it isn't that the fan slows down or that the roll lines appear on the TV the the scientific explanation which they put forth was that a well-sustained hundred hertz hum actually vibrates your eyeballs so that they become like strobes and you can freeze motion and you can uh, uh, slow things down and start them up again. So it, other people aren't able to perceive it. No, other people don't perceive it, but you perceive it. And told there were anecdotes mm -hmm. about airplane mechanics mm -hmm who can look at a spinning propeller and tell if it's flawed by jerking their head back and forth very quickly. And uh, this is very interesting because here is a way to use your voice to control your visual input and to actually gain secret information. Mm -hmm. If we had written a secret word on that propeller, uh -huh. you could win bets in a bar <laughs> by... Uh, <laughs> So, um, I think this needs to be looked into. What can we learn about the world by subjecting our bodies to different kinds of self-generated vibrations? And, you know, without the backup of someone like Martin Gardner, I'm sure people would dismiss a rap like that as pure fancy, utterly preposterous. The guy who wrote the article said it was very hard for him. He didn't have perfect pitch. It was very hard for him to maintain this hundred hertz Hum. So what he did was he got a wave generator which uh, would perfectly generate the hum and then he 
uh, modified a, a football helmet so that he could strap it to his stereo oh. speaker so he would rest his chin on his speaker oh. run this thing up to 100 hertz and then stop uh, the motion of the fan. Well, this is just an example of peripheral human abilities that we have not explored. I'm sure you all on LSD have experienced the time-smearing effect of motion where you move your hand and it just leaves it hanging there in all of its stages and people will say well your retinas are simply not quenching the previous image or some problem in the uh, something or other but the effect is to is to smear the psyche in time because we the psyche is defined largely by uh, the way the sensory inputs are uh, interpreted so I think uh, these linguistic phenomena are very uh, suggestive of special <coughs> abilities. I, I'm, I've said many times, you've probably all heard me say it, Philo Judeus, who was an exact contemporary of Christ, born before, died after, uh, was on a bug about what he called the more perfect logos. And he said the more perfect logos will be beheld rather than heard but it will go from being heard to being seen without ever crossing over a quantized point of division now that suggests that hearing and seeing are just two ends of a continuum and that your eyes slot you into part of that spectrum your ears slot you into another but that it's really a continuing spectrum and this the evolution of this more perfect logos is my uh, my hope for psilocybin that this can become an experience for people a kind of Urschbach you may be aware of um, Robert Graves book The White Goddess where he talks about a perfect poetic language that predates history a, a language of poetry so intense that to hear it was to understand it it required no conventionalizing of cultural context and dictionary it was so laden with existential validity that to hear it was to understand it we have very few articulations like that left perhaps moans screams and howls are the only words the ikaros and then varied Peruvian Indian dialects and yet when you're taking ayahuasca and they're taking it and seeing them, you can understand them, even though you've never heard the language before. Big validation from that, from the other people later. Yes, all of us who couldn't understand the language all felt very deeply that we were having images which jived with each other that we that we were getting. And did they then jive with the images that the uh, people? That's harder. It's hard for them to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Those people, because they are magical times, they don't analyze them in non-magical mm -hmm. time. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did but, you get any cross-valley? Yes, yes, we did. Uh, we had, um, back to you talking about the telepathic um, aspect of the mm -hmm. telepathic moments. It had to do with the songs and it had to do with the vision. But so we all recognized at one point, we and the environment outside all recognized the encroaching presence of death, some kind of death element. It was just outside the building. A baby cried, a dog howled, the clouds went over the moon, Jeez. and everybody got a big chill. You know? I just did. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the shaman jumped up and, like, commanded all of us in a way to go with him and then began hooting it away, you know, and it took some minutes. 
and then it was gone, and all in one moment, everyone just laid back and heaved a sigh of relief. That was a very telepathic moment that was not conducted in any language common to everyone there. You know? What was your experience when you took it after having salmonella? And what experience that will connect to having had salmonella? Um, you mean just what did it feel like when you'd have salmonella and then take it off? Yeah. I'm wondering if there were things that you experienced during the ayahuasca trance that were you definitely connected to having salmonella and resolving oh, yes. the... Uh, Traveling the through your organs, traveling through your bloodstream, being in your stomach and in your guts, recognizing, like on a tiny level, I mean, being a, yeah. a molecule traveling through, you know, seeing the little yellow enemies or whatever, all of those things happen, you know, um, the healing on that level you can do to yourself um, very well. And it, and it just felt like it just flushed it all out, like just the awareness, the deep awareness that we got in ayahuasca made all the bad invaders go away. And then they would be gone until we ate the food. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's very much like what Pelletier is doing at UC in their um, behavioral medicine clinic. Mm. But they're not using any drug and juice uh, trances as meditation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you would comment on uh, the relationship of what you're talking about to psychedelic synesthesia. Let's say things like LSD. <clears throat> you mean by psychedelic synesthesia, you mean fusing of the sensorium under psychedelic drugs? The initiation of, of visual phenomena by sound. You mean, do I think that happens on yeah, LSD? LSD Yes, pretty much, except that it's controllable, you know, and uh, and in fact, that's almost too, um, too restrictive a term. It isn't that the sound controls the visions, it's that the sound is the visions, and if you want to change the vision, you must change the sound, and so you actually can take control. Ayahuasca is wonderfully suggestive, and can be led in a way that these other things sometimes can't be. For instance, one of the most puzzling uh, things that it can do is that you can suggest a motif, for instance, Art Deco, and it will just go to that and flood you with millions and millions and millions of objects, all perfectly exemplifying this very constrained artistic style and then you can say no attic vases let's do attic vases thousands of them more than there must be you know <laughs> and then you can say okay now do one that now surprise me and it will produce an equally co aesthetically coherent stream of images that are not referent to any to any uh, historical period so then this raises questions you know what is fashion? What is style? What are these collective image systems which come out of nowhere, gain great power, and then fade away? And how is it that a drug can command them out of the single human mind? How it, what does it mean that on a psychedelic drug one person can see more art in an hour than the species has produced in 10,000 years. <laughs> what does that say about how effectively we are accessing our souls? It means, I mean, the, 
the potential then is so great. I mean, you prove it to yourself, you know. I mean, it's uh, very frustrating to imagine that that kind of beauty, those depths of ecstatic revelation, are that accessible to the individual and so totally hidden from us as a group. How can the potential be tapped? In our time. By, cha- by evolving language, by recognizing that reality is created by language and no longer accepting the natural evolution of language, but actually going to work to evolve language ever more rapidly so that we can uh, uh, communicate these modalities. I think that's a lot of what's happening here. I mean, the kind of, of means of trying to put together someone expressing these experiences that doesn't totally violate them and rip them apart. It's a very long process creating a new language. <laughs> you mentioned at one point uh, transcending the ego, but some of these people experience that, uh, you know, was it in a specific human uh, event for each person, or was it a collective event that happens when you get off, or um, I, re- I ask this because I think it's very intimately connected with what was just mentioned here as to the evolution of language and the tapping of our potential has to do with uh, transcending Transcending the ego and its expectations and its linguistic set, mainly. And its control of what we experience. Yes, language has not been examined enough, it seems to me. All the argument over man's place in nature and that sort of thing doesn't take cognizance of the fact that if you want to if you want a miracle, then language is the thing to look at because we know that our uh, genetic component is only three percent or something removed from chimpanzees and this and that. But this thing that we do with sound and meaning is of an ontologically different order. And I am not sympathetic with the people who want to blur the distinctions and say that dolphins talk, ants talk, bees talk. They may communicate, but this is a very different thing, what man is able to do, because for... 50,000 years or so, man has, uh, the species has not been evolving in the somatype. Somatype is relatively steady. What is evolving is culture. And what culture is, really, is language. Uh, culture is merely the uh, epiphenomenal accompaniment of language. So it is the evolution of language that is changing. And uh, all our ontological, uh, all our religious ontologies uh, in the Western tradition, the insistence on the coming of the Word into the world, the Word becoming flesh, in a sense man is the Word become flesh. And uh, what all this leads to, I'm not sure. I often like to think that our map of the world is so wrong that where we have centered physics, we should actually place literature as the, uh, the central metaphor that we want to work out from. Because I think uh, literature occupies the same relationship to life that life occupies to death. 
and I don't think very many people have thought of it in those terms. Uh, elaborating, please, on that one. True testimony of a word freak. Well, in the sense that uh, a book is a is life with one dimension pulled out of it, and uh, life is uh, is something which lacks a dimension which death will give it. I imagine death to be a kind of release into the imagination in the sense that for uh, characters in a book, what we experience is an unimaginable dimension of freedom. And, and this is why people like James Joyce, though arcane and difficult to pierce, seem to me central to understanding this because they're saying something about the relationship of books, reality, and death, that this is a cycle of expansion and understanding that is happening through language. At one time, there were no books. And uh, I think what you're saying is extremely perceptive. At the same time, I think there's a meta problem with it, which is that if you take a metaphor of literature, what you've done is you do the same thing that we're doing all the time, which is trying to abstract one element that is the central metaphor. It seems to me the central problem we're in is that it's very difficult for us to give equal emphasis to all possible metaphors, all possible a physical metaphor, a biological metaphor, a psychological, literary metaphor. And the problem is we focus too much on one thing. We're unable to express, or well, not unable, but having great difficulty in expressing a totality. Well, see, what you want is a theory of being true to experience. And what we have by centering <coughs> physics is a theory of being true to itself, meaning physics doesn't contradict itself. They're, they go to great pains to make sure that doesn't happen. On the other hand, the models that it offers bear no relationship to anything anybody can see, experience, know, or understand. So somehow an explanatory vehicle was chosen which explains something, but nothing with any immediacy. And right. Well, what I'm saying is, is to draw in other things, but not to, to push out the, uh, the quantum physics model, but to integrate all of them so that you've got a more comprehensive view and not trying to select one over the other. Yes, but you want it to be true to experience. Yeah. And the entire set of objects manipulated by physics are unseen, unknown. I mean, I mean to take as simple an object in physics as the electron, it seems more remote than uh, the resurrected Christ to me. <laughs> <laughs> and yet by invoking those notions, we then created them, you know, to try and find further and further particles. We created more them. And more That's right. But do these new creations then reflect back on experience? Do we learn then to be better people or more at ease with ourselves? Or And it seems the answer is no. We just unlock more and more demonic, uh, levels of uh, power. But that's the contradiction that physics produces in itself, you know, how they're trying to find a unified field theory for it. But what we need is a unified social theory so that we don't cause our extinction. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. A uniform social theory so that we don't cause our extinction. 
Now, uh, hey, that's something that, uh, as Terrence said, we should have our best people working on. And uh, I guess that is exactly what you are doing right now. So uh, press on. Just uh, just be sure that it includes having some fun, because uh, sometimes these head trips can wear us out, don't you think? Now, uh, since you may not remember it from one of my earlier podcasts, uh, but uh, at least once before I've mentioned the story that Paul Stamets told about the Amanita muscaria mushrooms. I wish uh, I had permission to tell the whole story of how he learned this fact, because uh, <laughs> it's one of the funniest mushroom stories I've heard. But uh, the bottom line is that apparently the active ingredient in the Amanita is not always equally distributed in the cap. Uh, as I remember the story, you could uh, have three quarters of a mushroom cap uh, be totally inactive, but the other one quarter could uh, knock your socks off. And, uh, of course, you can find a lot more about this uh, at arrowid.org, should you be interested. E-R-O-W-I-D.org. Now, uh, rather than add any more of my own comments right now, I'm going to uh, first pass along a couple of announcements and uh, then get on with the editing of the next tape in this series and uh, see if I can get it out before another week passes. But uh, here is a part of an email I received from Brian Duffy, and uh, I think it may be of interest to some of our fellow slaughters, uh, maybe even to you. Here's part of what Brian had to say. I am an avid follower of the Psychedelic Salon podcast and a big fan of Terrence McKenna. After listening to dozens of hours of tapes and reading all of his books, I started to wonder why none of his fellow scholars had attempted any sort of big Terrence McKenna biography. There's plenty to piece together from his talks and books, but only small paragraphs of actual biographical material out there. Are you aware of anything more substantial? Well, as I uh, told Brian, I'm not personally aware of any efforts uh, like that at this time, but I'm passing uh, this request along to see if maybe some of our fellow slaughters or uh, even you know something uh, like that uh, might be in the works. Now, uh, my final announcement is one that I hope you take action on. Uh, this is my 240th podcast from here in the Psychedelic Salon, and on each and every one of them, uh, there's been another person whose voice you've heard in the background, and uh, that's my dear friend, Jock Oliver. And as you know, Jock is the uh, man behind the musical group Chateau Hayuk, whose song El Alien is our theme song here in the Salon. Now, what you may not know is that uh, Jock is also the uh, caretaker gardener at Terrence McKenna's old house on Hawaii. And uh, along with Finn, they're restoring the garden to its original condition. However, uh, due to uh, a stroke of bad luck, uh, Jacques now needs to raise some money in a hurry and is uh, trying to do so by selling his uh, new CD titled Nature Loves Courage. And uh, that's all one word, by the way, Nature Loves Courage. Uh, and it's available as an MP3 download at uh, www.cdbaby, all one word, cdbaby. Dot com, which is uh, the musician's site there. And I'll put a, a link directly through to the CD with the program notes for this podcast. But uh, over the years, I've had a lot of requests about Jacques' music and uh, uh, his, his Chateau Hayuk CD that uh, our theme music came from is uh, out of print. But uh, at last, now you have a chance to uh, hear what he's been up to these past few years. And uh, by the way, there's even a transmix of our uh, theme song on his new CD. So if you can, uh, it would be really cool if you can uh, give Jacques a helping hand, and uh, I'm also sure that you're going to enjoy his new music. 
And uh, as soon as I can get my own act together, I hope to do an interview with Jacques from Terence's house and uh, also get a preview of his music for you as well. Well, that's going to have to do it for today, and uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you once again that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear a lot about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>